0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Thanks for gathering here this morning and for bringing the church into uh, this YMCA gymnasium. Excited to dive into Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But before that, if we've never had the opportunity to meet, my name is Jamie. It's my great privilege to serve here as one of the pastors, and I'll be uh, out in the connections area after the service. I'd love the opportunity to meet you if we've never met. Before, and uh, we are diving into, for really the the fall, until we get to the Advent season, all right? And you're like, well, it's almost here because Costco has Christmas trees up now. But besides that, right, we're not quite to Advent yet. So we're in this journey through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that's ever been preached, where King Jesus begins to gather his disciples, begins to gather the crowds, and begins to lay out for them what it looks like when God begins to, through his son, the king comes to take his world back. In fact, right before we get to Matthew chapter five, which is where the Sermon on the Mount begins, Jesus said these words. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's declaring it's time to move in a new direction. That's what repent means, right? It's not this groveling sort of thing, but it's like I've been moving in one direction, and the king is here, and he's calling me now not to submit to myself and to my will, but rather to follow him and so he comes on the scene he says i'm reclaiming my world and i'm inviting you to participate i'm going to restore and renew everything and what we have in the sermon on the mount is what it looks like when the king takes his world back and when we begin to live by the power of the spirit this beautiful vision that Jesus has for humanity, all right? So the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so language like that kingdom is in a language that we tend to use a lot, particularly in our you know, context here in, in America. But if you think about this for a moment, all right? Um, let me put this picture up here on the screen. You see this particular vehicle and you're looking at that. I'm guessing right away there should be something that seems a little different to you, right? As you notice, you're like, hey, that steering wheel, all right, is on the wrong side. now. It is the wrong side here, but if you were to be in the UK, if you're in England, let's say, right, like it wouldn't be on the, the wrong side. So imagine you're part of that particular kingdom, all right, and you bring your vehicle across the pond, all right, and you come over to the United States of America and you begin to live out the kingdom that you've been part of and you stay driving on, you know, your, the steering wheel's on that side of the car, the right side instead of the left, and you begin to drive on the opposite side of the road. Like, very quickly, you would realize there are kingdoms that are in conflict, right? Like, you are on a collision course. You imported your values of a particular kingdom. And what Jesus is doing in a far more dramatic fashion than simply driving on the other side of the road is saying, all right, I am here, I'm reclaiming this world, but there are going to be some pain points, there's some difficulty because there is a collision course with the values of the kingdom Versus the values of what this world espouses and what we find ourselves being discipled by all the time. And in particular, the section we're getting into here is Jesus is beginning to lay out. And this is going to set the stage for the next several weeks. Because Jesus is going to do this work of saying, you have heard it said. And he's going to talk to the people about the laws, the rules, everything that they knew. And he's going to show them how they should be rightly interpreted. But to think for a moment that that was just welcome, like, oh, that's great, we, we love learning a bit more. No, this was the equivalent, and then some of driving on the other side of the road and saying, these kingdom values are here and it is going to be a collision course with the values that had previously been held. And so in Matthew chapter five, 17 to 20, is this setup for what will be in the next several weeks. And so I wanna read this in its entirety and then we'll work through this. And so please turn to Matthew chapter five, 17 to 20. If you brought a Bible, if not, a couple different options. There's some paperback ones on the back tables there. You can get up, grab one of those Bibles. Uh, you can turn to page 898 if you're using one of those. That's where this passage is found. Take that Bible home with you. If you don't have a Bible or if you've got one that's in some translation that's difficult to make sense of, we'd encourage you to take that one with you. The other option is to take out your phone device. Go to CPWP. Dot life. Swipe over the second card. says message notes. The text this morning, including what uh, other notes and things that will be up on the screen, will be listed there for you so you can follow along. But I want to go ahead and read this in God's Word. It, even this is a passage this morning about the Word of God. And in particular, like, what did Jesus actually believe about the Word of God? And what does it mean to actually follow God's Word, to be submitted to God's word. And so as I read this, would you go ahead and stand? I'm gonna read Matthew chapter five, verses 17 to 20. It says this. Jesus, these are his words, right? This is the collision course. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, verse 19, whoever relaxes, one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, so... Few short verses, but it's packed with a lot. In fact, I've struggled this entire week, I'll be honest with you, like, trying to think through, like, how deep a dive do we do in this? Do we just kind of stay high level, or do we go? Because there's a lot in here that you could just kind of dive deeply into, because Jesus is talking about how he views the scriptures at that time, which would have been the, what we know as the Old Testament. So let's look at these first couple verses here, all right? Um, and I'm gonna try and do a deep dive in some spots, but also just kind of set it up for what we'll see in the next few weeks because there we will also get the opportunity to dive deeper into some of these things. And so Jesus comes on the scene and he begins to clarify. And the reason he's got to clarify, the reason he even starts out and says, all right, do not think that I've come to abolish the law is because apparently there were some people that were looking at Jesus and they're hearing his teachings and they're seeing the way that he's interacting with people and not just interacting, but even the people that he's hanging out with. And they're already some uptightness that was beginning to happen. There's some nervousness that's on the scene now that the people, the religious leaders and others are like, we don't know how to quite box this guy in. We can't quite figure him out. I wonder, does he even really believe in God's word? And so the question that gets raised here early on is this, like what did Jesus actually believe about the Bible? Because there were people that, when we'll learn, the Pharisees, the scribes, uh, other religious leaders, that seemingly are beginning to think, no, he doesn't quite believe. He gets it wrong. I think he's wanting to throw out God, God's word. And so when it speaks here, all right, um, of God's word, the language that's used, all right, is it'll speak of the law or the prophets or uh, the law, oftentimes referred to as the Torah, all right? And so you have the first five books of the Bible and then the prophets, all the other writings that would comprise the, the Old Testament, all right? And so it's kind of the shorthand way of saying what we know as the Old Testament. like. Was Jesus, like, did he follow that? Like, what's actually happening? And so look with me. We'll look at verse 18 first, then come back to 17. The words again in verse 18. Jesus says, for truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, what's really fascinating here is that initial phrase there, those first couple words, for for truly. Now, imagine that I got up for here just a moment ago and began to pray, and the first words out of my mouth, all right, instead of being like, you know, dear Heavenly Father, if I just came up and just said, amen, like, you had just closed your eyes, probably, all right, um, you would maybe just started to focus, and then I declare amen, you'd be like, wait, what? Right, because you're like, doesn't that normally go at the end? and it's our way if you study the the where the word amen comes from we don't have to do a you know a deep dive into all that but just know this it's a way where we communicate after a prayer is uttered or something is said and you're trying to you're amening that all right maybe that's not what you're used to doing but people do say those sort of things all right so this amen is a declaration of that is true that is right sort of a let it be so we want to see that happen And what Jesus is doing here is really fascinating. It's the word here that we would get amen. He's starting out with, and he's saying, amen. Like, I can't emphasize this enough. And so he's putting it even at the very start of this sentence. He's like, amen. Like, he's like, I'm not anti the law. I'm for the law and the prophets. I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So it's his way of like, hey, I'm just starting with, I want you guys to know, like, I'm enthusiastic about the law. He's like, I'm actually more excited about the law than you would be. He has this passion for the word of God. How often do we see Jesus coming on the scene and beginning to quote Old Testament passages? Matthew, as he's writing this account, this historical account, has been clear to even showcase for us all the ways that Jesus has been the fulfillment of many prophecies and things that we're talking about him many, many years prior. And so just for a moment, just ask yourself, like as we think about the law, all right, maybe you grew up in an environment, all right, where you studied the Old Testament, all right, you're studying the Bible, but perhaps it was done in sort of like, well, here's some, you know, here's some people that are sort of heroes and you can kind of, you know, maybe seek to imitate them or emulate their, their life. Or maybe you've been in an environment where it's like, thankfully we're New Testament people, we don't have to, we can kind of discard the Old Testament. Jesus would have known nothing of that. The people that were heroes really weren't heroes, for one, because nobody's perfect except King Jesus. So this call, like, I'm gonna imitate, I'm gonna be like David, he slayed Goliath. Oh, yeah, but he also murdered somebody and took that guy's wife as his own and had all sorts of other things going on. Like, you can't, you literally can't find anybody that did the right thing. Noah, yes, Noah, man, yeah, he was righteous, he built the, oh, yeah, he, he did build the ark. And then afterwards, guess what his first order of business was when he got out of the ark? He got naked and grew a bunch of uh, grapes and made wine and passed out drunk, basically, right? Like, go read it, it's in the Bible. It's not usually in the kid's Bible, right? But it's like, it's there. I mean you can't find anyone that's just like they're just a hero they're amazing it's like no it's all pointing to one who is amazing that we know as Jesus and so it's not just to to imitate all right um it's also not well let's just get rid of the Old Testament we're New Testament people no no, no. we're people of the Bible because Jesus is amening it so how, how do you like perceive the law? How do you think about the Bible? How do you think about the Holy Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament? I love the way the psalmist says this in Psalm chapter one, verses one to two. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, and notice the language here, but his delight, his absolute sheer and utter delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he meditates day and night. I mean, think about it. Most of us probably feel good if this past week are like, yeah, four out of seven days, I did a 10-minute devotional, all right? I meditated for just a moment. Like, and I'm not knocking that at all, right? Like, spend time in God's word. But the language here is like, I can't get enough of the word of God. I can't get enough of his law. It delights my soul. Forget Netflix, forget college football. I'm in that camp right now, but that's another story, all right? Um, all of this, he's like, I delight in the law of the Lord. Day and night, can't get enough. I'm gonna soak it in. Psalm 119, look at verse 97 and also verse 103. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you think about God's word in that sort of context? Jesus did. This is how Jesus viewed the Bible. Verse 103 of Psalm 119. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, I can't think of anything more enjoyable than to take in, to consume the word of God. I meditate on it, I enjoy it, it is amazing. God does something through his word. Do we have that sort of passion? Are we a people that are passionate about the word of God? Jesus was passionate about the word of God. Jesus didn't have this view of like, ah, forget about that. That's when God was kind of old and cranky, but he's gotten everything sort of sorted out. He saw a doctor and everything's all worked out now, and now he's got things good and he's in place, he's in a better spot. No, 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 like the gracious God has been from beginning to end. And so how do you view it? And then this language here, did you notice this? I mean, maybe some phrases, and there's different translations that use other, other words, all right? But he's like, listen, this law, this word, not an iota, not a dot, what does that actually mean? Now, those that study these things, I'll read you a quote that kind of summarizes from Kent Hughes in his commentary. He says this, Jesus' language here, he says, is compelling. The smallest letter is the Hebrew yod, which looks something like an apostrophe. Okay, so you can picture an apostrophe. There are approximately 66,420 yods in the Old Testament. So there's a lot. They show up in quite a bit bit of places. The least stroke then is the Hebrew seraph, a tiny extension on some letters that distinguishes them from similar letters. So this tiny little marking. Not one of the 66,000 plus yods or innumerable little seraphs will pass from the law, which here includes the law and the prophets, until all is accomplished. So it's Jesus's way of saying, you think for a moment I'm anti the law? No, you've got it all wrong. I love the word of God. I delight in the word of God. What we learn in other passages of scripture, like John one, like he actually is the word that showed up in flesh. Jesus is not anti the word. He's embodied it in flesh and blood. And he's like, not even the smallest little detail will go until everything is accomplished. I pay attention to it all, I'm dialed in. Like you think you're a bit OCD about the word of God? Like I pay attention to everything is what he's communicating. And it all matters. So look with me now at verse 17. After Jesus says this, he says, do not think. And the language here at the beginning is like, it, you know, we can kind of skip past that. and like, okay, well, you don't even think about it. It's, it's literally, it's like he's grabbing you sort of by the shoulders. All right. And he's just like, don't think for a moment. It's, it's literally like he's kind of screaming, kind of drawing our attention. Like, don't be ridiculous. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but I've actually come to fulfill them. And what Jesus is doing here is he's setting things up, where he's gonna take us in the next over the next few weeks what we'll be studying together is his interpretation, his right interpretation of the law and how he has come to fulfill everything. It's Jesus' way of saying, listen, it's all gonna get accomplished. You begin to read through. Now, they wouldn't have had it bound like this, but they would have had scrolls and things and the, the towns and the villages would have had this and the people would have gathered and they would have been excited to hear from God through his word and Jesus saying everything everything you have in the old testament starting in the book of genesis and all the way through he's like he's been telling one story and God in his grace and his mercy and his love towards us wants us to know hey it's ultimately the story is not about you And it's not about me. It's a story about God and his work and his kingdom and how the king is on the move and he's reclaiming everything. Even though we're part of the story because we messed the whole thing up, he has said and he's made a promise I am going to come back. I'm going to set everything right. I'm going to crush the head of the servant of the enemy. There's going to be a battle, but don't worry, I'm going to be victorious. And so in this sort of shorthand, just in these first couple of verses, Jesus is saying, I take the law so seriously that I actually showed up in flesh and blood to fulfill all of it. Every single bit of the Old Testament scriptures. This is what you have to know. Maybe you get confused in reading the Bible. I get confused in reading the Bible. There's sections that I'm like, I really don't know what's going on here. I wish I understood this a a bit better. I'll go read seven or eight commentaries. Wow, I'm more confused than when I started. Right, you have those, those moments, all right? And yet... Even in our confusion, just step back and realize there's one big story, and the story is about Jesus, and the story is about God's grace, and what God is doing in his world, what he's inviting us to be part of. And so when Jesus says this, I've not come to abolish them, I'm not doing away with them, and I'm not saying, you know what, forget about that, that was like the beta version, but now we're on to this, so all you early adopters, you've got the new release here, you can go ahead and have this, that's not what he's communicating come to fulfill and so if we we don't have the time for this and we'll get into some of it in the upcoming weeks but if you go back and you begin to see oh all the law that the lord gave to his people in his grace to showcase for them what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of god as the king so life might actually flourish and yet we fail jesus comes on the scene and is like but i lived it perfectly he lived a perfectly obedient life willing to submit to the Father even when it would cost him everything. He says, not my will, but your will be done. And my problem is I walk around day in and day out going, no, I want my will to be done rather than God's will. And yet Jesus is here and saying, I'm fulfilling everything. I've kept the law perfectly. Every story in the Bible is pointing ultimately to me. Every prediction, every prophecy, we'll get into some of these details. I mentioned Advent earlier, like when you start to study that and you realize, oh, there was this prophecy about where the, the baby would, would be born in Bethlehem. You see that that comes true. Matthew's already connected dots for us in the first four chapters about drawing this, this person out of Egypt, and there's all these fascinating things that are happening. There's references to the law being given Paralleling Moses, and it's all way of way is saying, yeah, that was cool, but look, the ultimate is here now. Back in 2007, I believe this is when when it happened. There was a uh, a, a large conference. Uh, uh, the Gospel Coalition, I believe, hosted th- this one, and, um, and there were different sessions that, that happened, and, and one of which, um, this guy I reference every so often, my kids tell me you reference him every week, Tim Keller, yes, okay, um, and so I've got his poster, it's amazing, no I don't, but anyway, alright, so, but in this, he's addressing this large gathering there. And he was trying to make the, this particular point. And I would say this became something that became well-known or quasi-famous. What I mean really by that is like amongst nerdy pastors, it became like, ooh, did you see this, right? It's probably what it means. But, but I have loved it over the years where he begins to lay out, it's what birth, even like the Jesus Storybook Bible. Maybe you have that for, for your kids of just this way of understanding that everything about Jesus. It's what he's driving at here, that Jesus is the true and better. You fill in the blank, you look at every person in the Old Testament, and there's some good things about those people, but there's ways that they fall short, and Jesus shows up, and it's, he's more true, he's better than anyone or anything. And so, lest we get in our mind that like, oh, you need to go and be like David because he slayed the giants. No, no, that's not what that story is ultimately communicating. And so we began to lay out, and so there's different people through, down over the last decade or so that have taken some of that, and I'm gonna show you one here where it was just sort of, it was those words that he spoke. Now, this is not him speaking, but there's a narrator saying the things that he spoke on that particular day in 2007 um, with a graphic artist that's beginning to depict some of these things. I want you just to watch this for a moment. Like, if you get nothing else out of the sermon today, hopefully it's just this and its communication, I believe so clearly that the story is about Jesus, that it points to Jesus. So let's watch this together. It's about three minutes, and then we'll, we'll continue
1: The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories, it is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman, there is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his Father on the Mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve, so we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses, who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah, who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person. Jesus.
0: If you're wondering, like, when you can use the word amen, it would be then, right? Come on. So is this beautiful unpacking, and this is what Jesus is saying. He's coming on the scene, and he's like, everything is about me, and I'm here to fill Now... It's no wonder it got him killed though. That was an audacious claim to make. The Apostle Paul would pick up on this and as he's writing to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God, what? Find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Every single longing, every single promise, every single like hope that we had, it finds its fulfillment in Jesus because he's the one who actually accomplished what he set out to do. He's the one who can actually declare, it is finished. There's nothing about my work or your work or anything that we try and do that we can ever say, it is finished. All right, if we were constantly trying to earn the approval of God, it would never be enough. It would be a mountain that we could not climb. And yet Jesus says, no, 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 I've done it. It is finished, I've accomplished. And so the story of the Old Testament, the story of the New Testament, the story of the Bible, the story that Jesus is telling is a story of grace through and through. And so there can be confusion in the Sermon on the Mount, even as we get in these next couple of verses, all right? He gives us some warning. He gives some caution here. But you have to see this in light of there's grace, all right? And then how do we live in light of that grace? When the people of God were given the Ten Commandments, they were not given that while they were in Egypt, and if they obeyed, all right, if they were perfect for a couple of weeks to the top ten, they got to be liberated. No, Moses led them by the power of God, out of Egypt, and then gave them the law, here's how you are to live. And yet we know that this law, apart from the work of God, like it crushes us. It, it reveals our inadequacy. Paul, Apostle Paul speaks of this over and over again, and yet he can celebrate the law because ultimately it does push down on us to the point where we're like, I can't do this, I need a rescuer. And then we're reminded what again? of our Savior, of Jesus, the one who has fulfilled everything. But look at these words now, these words of warning or of caution. or You could say Jesus, like what he's calling us to as his people in light of his grace, in light of everything that he's fulfilled. Look at verse 19 and 20. It says this, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. So remember, he said, like, I'm all for the law. I'm not discarding that, all right? So don't relax it. He said, we'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so for a few moments here, just ask yourself as you think about it, all right, we think about the law, we think about what God has called us to, even if we went with just the quick summary when Jesus asked like, hey, what's the most important commandment? He gives two Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Let me just ask you, even just in that category for a moment, are you relaxing? Meaning, discarding it, dim- dismissing it, being indifferent toward it, thinking, well, he certainly doesn't mean that neighbor. It certainly doesn't mean that I have to give everything. I'll give God my best when I'm here on Sunday morning or when I show up for a Bible study or community group or something like that. But does he really mean to love God with everything that I am? Every single moment of every single day well yeah he does and so there's this tension here like okay what do we do with that are you relaxing or are you seeking to obey and then as jesus tells us in the great commission at the end of the book of matthew like to go out all right and teaching people to obey all that i have commanded are we relaxing are we saying hey it's all about grace and we celebrate that but to the neglect of calling for like obedience of saying, here's what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of King Jesus? Are we only believing part of the story and believing like, okay, it's all about grace, but I'm just gonna kind of sit, sit back and I can kind of do whatever I want? Well, Paul would speak to this, and he's like, no, certainly not. Is it, do we go and like sin all the more so we can experience more grace? He's like, no, you've missed it. That there's this work that God is doing when he saves us by his grace, that he gives us the spirit, and he's doing this work in us that over time, it's not an immediate thing, but there's this trajectory that we are on, and that one day he's gonna set everything right, including your heart and my heart. And so we don't have time to go through all of these things. At this point in the story, when Jesus shows up, it was believed to be, there were about 600, when the scribes and the Pharisees, these people, they had 613, I think, laws uh, that they were uh, very diligent about, all right? Um, And so that's a lot of things to keep track of, all right? So let's not go through all 613. We don't have time for that, but let's let's go to what was initially given as the law. God's sort of top 10, right? We get the 10 commandments, all right? Let's just look at this and think through for a moment because as I read this list, I'm like, oh, I'm relaxing way more than I want to admit. So the very first one, you shall have no other gods before me, is this idea that is there anything that is having preeminence in your life more than God? our career, our relationship, other people's approval, comfort, house improvements, trap, like whatever, right? Like what are we becoming consumed by? Like right out of the gate, it's like, oh, I've broken the first one. This is why Martin Luther would say, you actually, if we could just keep the first commandment, we wouldn't break any of the other ones. It's true, right? Like if I got that right, everything else would fall into place. You should have no carved images. And we're like, oh, well, I'm good on that one, really? We might not have carved it, but aren't there things that we give time and energy and attention to? It's related to the first one. where we sacrifice for things that we bow down in worship? Just pay attention to the narrative that is out there. Do not take the Lord's name in vain, both in the the language that we would use in sort of a cursing sense, but also in the, like, are you flippant with the, the, the Lord's name? Are you casual about it? Are you disrespectful towards him? Remember the Sabbath day? that God in his grace has given us a, a Sabbath, how many of us just work and work and work and never truly rest? Honor your father and mother. Have you done that perfectly? Have you sought to honor your father and mother? What if you're like, well, my, my father and mother, you don't know them, they're not very honorable. Apparently, it says honor them. So what do you do with that? You're like, oh, you shall not murder. Okay, we're into this, okay. Second half of the list, I feel a little bit better about this one. Yeah, until we get a little further into the passage in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is like, you got, you got anger in your heart? You call somebody a fool, right? It's the equivalent of you murdering them. Like, okay, dang, all right, now I'm, I'm on the hook for that one, too. You shall not commit adultery. He says, even if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, guilty. Okay, so guilty of that. You shall, shall not steal. Huh. Maybe you're like, no, I didn't rob 7-Eleven this week. Okay, good for you, but, but think about it. You've been given an amount of time. Did, did you use that well? Did you steward that well? The, the time the company pays you for? Steal any of that time this week? There's a, there's a call to, to give God first fruits. Have you held any of that back or have you been generously giving to God and his, his purposes? Maybe we're more thieves than we would care to admit. You shall not bear false witness. You're speaking against somebody. You're gossiping about, about somebody. Right? I mean, these things start to add up. I'm like, I, I don't, it's a good thing we're not going through the other 603. Like, I'm just depressing, right? You shall not covet. You shall not look at Instagram, right? Like, you see, and you're like, oh, look at this person. They went on this trip, or this thing looks amazing, Right? I did tell somebody the other day, we were talking, there's some photos that we have hanging on our wall. After like a year and a half in the house, I finally hung something on the wall. And it's just, it's a beautiful. I really love it. It's a great shot of our, of our family and our kids, and it's great. And I'm like, yeah, but you know the backstory to this, right? Like it was weeping and gnashing of teeth right before this, right? And we had other family that were gathered there, and I think we all hated each other in that moment, and we're trying to ask a stranger to come take a picture. I mean, it's just a debacle, right? Like, got the picture. It looks great. I'll show it to you sometime. But we're also... We can look at other people's lives and think everything must be amazing for them. Or there's this idea here of like, no, I, I'm, I can't celebrate with them. I want what they have. And we covet. And the words that are often attributed to the author Mark Twain, it ain't those parts of the Bible that I can't understand that bother me. It is the parts that I do understand. Like that's a pretty simple list there that the Lord has given to us on the one hand. And it's like, I understand it, but I failed, like colossally failed this past week. My guess is you did as well in different ways and some of the particulars, but there is this part of the human heart that the very first commandment reminds us. Like we have, we, we have divided hearts. We have this affection we're trying to give to other things when the Lord is saying, no, no, no. You're to live under my rule and reign. And so Jesus takes this and he ramps it up and even says in verse 20, He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, that's a hard statement. Because the scribes and the Pharisees were the ones that knew and interpreted and studied diligently day in and day out these 613 laws memorizing perhaps the the old testament oftentimes for many of them if not the whole at least the first five books of the bible you know those books of the bible like we have a hard time getting through in our bible reading plan yeah they're just committing them to memory these are the experts these are the best of the best they're the smartest they're the most dialed in they're the most devoted and he's like yeah those people unless you exceed their righteousness good luck getting into the kingdom of heaven and he's just sort of like, what is this, this, mic drop and Jesus walks away and we're all despairing? Like, what, what do we do with this? What is he trying to communicate? But we have to remember, he said, I've come to fulfill. This is not just to be meant in like verse 20 is in isolation or don't make this, you know, sort of like this is the one I put on the coffee cup or on the t-shirt, this is my new life verse every morning, right? Like, it's in a context and the context is Jesus showing up and saying everything has been about me and my grace and my provision and how I'm fulfilling and now I'm inviting you to live in a whole new way and yet he also knows That the scribes and the Pharisees externally, they had modified their behavior. They'd gathered a bunch of information about the Bible. And Jesus knows the human condition enough to know that that is our great temptation. It's my great temptation to think, well, I just know a little bit, or I can Google that, or I can read this book, or I can modify my behavior. But that's actually not what Jesus is calling us to. And so what we need to see here, we'll close with this, is not only does Jesus all right, he comes on the scene and he's, he's cautioning us and warning, but Jesus is the one he wants to remind us again that he changes us. What he's speaking of exceeding the righteousness, which means to be in like right relationship with God, with other people, this, this holiness, all of this, what is being communicated is a transformation, a renovation of the heart that flows out then into how we would live and what you would see externally. That's what it means to exceed the righteousness. He's looking. He's not impressed with the scribes and the Pharisees. Like, okay, you modified your behavior. Good for you. But your heart is wicked. There is a heart issue. And what Jesus is pressing in this is saying, I'm the one who's showing up on the scene, and I'm fulfilling everything, and I'm going to make a way for your heart to change. Because you think about this, right? You know the, the story. When the People of God were given the Ten Commandments. Did they just kind of, all right, cool, we're good to go, and they just ob- lived a life of obedience? You know that's not the story. Like we read the Old Testament, we know how often they failed. and How often that's your story and my story. It's not like, look at those crazy people. It's like, that's what I would do. That's what I do continue to do. And so Jesus knows the only way it's going to exceed is if something happens inter- internally. And so there was a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was given these words by the Lord to say, here's what's going to happen when the king comes back and reclaims his world. Here's the transformation that Jesus is looking ahead and that ultimately he's going to bring. And so he says these words in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. He says, behold. It's like stand in awe and wonder. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Not Jeremiah declaring this, he's just the mouthpiece, right? It's the Lord declaring, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers in the days when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And so just know this, this was still in the background. This was still in the minds of the Jewish people. When Jesus shows up on the scene, little boys and girls were taught growing up that one day this was going to happen. We don't know when or how or what, but there's going to be this transformation that takes place. And here's how the Lord speaks of it through his servant, Jeremiah. He says, in that day, I will put my law within them. So it's not on the external, it's not on the scroll. It literally is inside of them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, well, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And how is this possible, he says? For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So there's a day that's coming that Jeremiah writes and says, one day there's going to be this internal transformation that's going to take place where the law will be written, not on tablets of stone, but literally on our hearts, and it's gonna bring such change. And the way that that is going to happen is because there's gonna be forgiveness, there's gonna be grace, there's gonna be reconciliation, there's gonna be a remembering no more of our sin and our shame. Like, we remember it, right? Like, there's still things you carry in your story, I carry things that we feel shame over, like, you're not, we're not even planning on thinking of it, and it just pops in your head, and like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And you're like, dude, that was 18 years ago. Yeah, but still, like, I can't believe that happened. But God is gonna wipe that clean. God is gonna remember your sin no more. God is going to do a work, and when Jesus steps on the scene here, and what he's declaring in Matthew chapter five is it's happening. And the story that we're part of now is God writing the law on our hearts. And he's making it possible so that you and I can actually live in a way empowered by the Spirit, remembering the gospel, to live in a whole new way. And the times when we fail and the times when our sin still crushes us, we run back to Jesus, we're on our knees, we're praying, we're thanking him, we're beholding his grace and yet we're also empowered to live in a whole new way. We'll close with this. Romans chapter 8, 1 to 4 would summarize it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You're new. You're in Christ. No condemnation. The devil will speak condemnation, whispering in your ear about how terrible, remind you of all these things. Spirit brings conviction, never condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never save you and me. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Isn't that a fascinating line that the Apostle Paul uses there? You see it, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. This is what happens when the law gets written on your heart when you experience the grace of God, when there's no more condemnation, you see what Jesus has done for you, that he lived a perfectly obedient life and he died the death that you deserve and that I deserve and that three days later he rose again showing that he had conquered Satan's sin and death and he has ascended to the heavens and he's exalted and he's ruling and reigning right now and the king is in the process of taking his world back and ultimately he's gonna do it when he splits the sky and he comes back and he dwells with his people and in the meantime, he sent his spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead if you're a follower of Christ it's in your heart it's in your life you might feel weak and impotent I don't have any power you've got the spirit of God living in you taking up residence in your life and it's telling us that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us because God is doing something he's making Jeremiah 31 come true and we don't experience that and it's perfection and fulfillment perfectly right here and we still battle sin but this is what God is doing Martin Lloyd-Jones said, said this, the effect of this glorious redeeming work is not only to give forgiveness to us miserable law-breaking rebels against God, but to make us sons of God, those who delight in the law of God, those indeed who hunger and thirst after righteousness and who long to be holy, not in the sense of having a wonderful feeling or experience, but who long to live like Christ and to be like him in every respect. That's where joy is found. So let me pray for us, but I want to encourage you to take some time. What is it that the Spirit is bringing? Maybe not condemnation, but the Spirit is bringing convic- conviction and what you need to confess, your lack of belief in the gospel. Maybe, you're, maybe you've never believed in the gospel ever What Jesus has come. May today be the day that you trust in him, that you move from a place of being condemned to no condemnation because you're in Christ Jesus. Now let's celebrate the reality of the gospel. We're going to do that for the remainder of our, our service, and I'll give you some instruction on that in a moment. And then ask what, by the power of the Spirit, is the Lord asking you to do? Like, what is it that he's committing you? Hey, grow in this area, not to earn the affections of God. You can't do it. It's not to get God to get on your side or get his approval. You already have it in Jesus, but now you're empowered by the Spirit. say, so I get to live in a whole new way. I get to showcase what it looks like when the king takes his world back. Not just individually, but collectively as a church. Let me pray for us, and we'll continue in worship. Father, thank you for your kindness, your grace. Thank you for your willingness to send your son to rescue us as we are rebels, we are wretched on our own, that we choose our own will, our own way, our own name, forgetting you, discarding you, and yet in your kindness, your faithfulness to your covenant, all of it, that you would come and that you would put a rescue plan together. And so we're so grateful for that. Thank you, Jesus, that you fulfilled everything. Thank you that you are the true hero to be worshipped. Thank you that we're not called to to measure up on, on our own. We could never do it. But thank you that we've been made new in you. And in light of that, we have the spirit now. and We can live in a whole new way. And so, God, I pray now in these couple moments of reflection and quiet, that you would hear the prayers of your people spirit. Would you be at work now leading us in time of confession and repentance the same time spirit we trust that you are that spirit of comfort and so would you apply gospel comfort to our hearts the places where we carry shame over our brokenness and places where we still condemn ourselves or we believe the lies of the the enemy spirit would you comfort us down in those the dark recesses of our heart that oftentimes we don't want to peer into And so continue to mold us and shape us into the type of people that would follow after our King. And so God, I pray that you would hear your prayers now for your glory and for our great joy. In Jesus' name, amen.